Good evening, everyone. Uh, Council, were, were we able to pick up Dr. Uh, Trustee Banerjee? Trustee Banerjee, are you in the room? She was having some tech issues. I don't see her, but uh, she'll be joining. Um, Madam Clerk, we'll make comment when she does join with regard to time, is that okay? Yep, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the June 23rd, uh, 2021 QPSC. Uh, we're about to go into roll call with a couple of comments. Trustee uh, Steen has already advised that she would be absent. We have a new uh, trustee uh, uh, adding, adding on to this committee, Trustee um, um, Mark Friedman. And this will be the last uh, uh, com quality committee for Trustee Splendorio, who often has some conflicts in here, but he'll be maintaining all his other uh, uh, committee activities. So with that, we'll go into roll call, please. Yes, Trustee Banerjee. It looks like she might be logging in. Um, Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Dong. Here. Trustee Friedman. I'm present, but uh, unfortunately, the Citrix Zoom link won't allow me to access the camera, so I'm not being antisocial. Um, I think I need to get that iPad, and then I could probably solve all these problems. I don't have it. We'll work on that first thing. Thank you. Okay. Um, Trustee Pinson. Here. Uh, Trustee Splendorio. Here. And I forgot to call Trustee Steen, but as uh, Trustee Bouquet mentioned, she has an excused absence. So we do okay. have a quorum, though. I ask everyone to mute uh, and uh, while they're not speaking, just to keep it a little bit, uh, keep some of the reverb out, uh, and we'll kick off the meeting. Remember, we start out every meeting with announcing the purpose of the QPSC, uh, again, from, from our policies and procedures. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. Uh, that opens, uh, that's sort of our little bit of an opening salvo. We make space here for public comment. As a reminder, uh, the agenda has full and clear instructions for our public on how they can sign up for public comment. Uh, this board's practice and culture is to be in full open receipt of all public commentary. As they say, all feedback is a gift. Um, Madam Clerk, is there any public comment? No, there is not. Thank you. With that, we will go to agenda item A, uh, which is uh, the, the chair's report. At, and following with our standard practice, we bring an article for learning. Uh, this uh, month's article is entitled, Seven Features of Highly Effective Outcomes Improvement Projects. Um, just to remind our audience and everyone at play here, uh, about three months ago, under the guidance of our chief medical officer, our associate chief medical officer, our then chief quality officer, we, uh, the, uh, the agenda item of quality improvement projects was borne out as a standing and fixed agenda item. So um, uh, quality improvement, I think, is something that, uh, that we should all cherish, and it's important to help this organization thrive and become what we want to be. This article is sort of a, if you will, guidance on ways to make it better. So seven, seven things, I'm just gonna go through them quickly and then open up for comment if any. The first uh, uh, feature of a highly effective outcome improvement project is focusing on the outcomes rather than the accountability. To quote from the article, 
So what does measuring for improvement really mean? It's the concept that we focus on the process and not the individuals. It's the idea that in looking to improve the process, we don't waste time getting every data point 100% correct, but we get enough information at a level of accuracy to evaluate if the interventions we are making are working or not. It should be no surprise that the project that actually measures for improvement improves target outcomes more quickly and more dramatically uh, because all participants know the focus is on the system and the process rather than on the people. Fear is removed from the project. Um, I, I, I believe that this organization strives to do that. Number two, define your goal and aim statements early and stick to them. I think that sometimes we don't do this as well. Uh, uh, people, uh, the concept of mission creep is something that happens uh, in every organization and we have more than enough to do here. Um, so it becomes, uh, I, I think it, it's, it's not a fault of ours. I think it's, I, I actually credit with us with trying to be aspirational, but this is sort of the discipline of defining your goal and aim statements very early on. Um, uh, for those of you who know the acronym SMART goals, um, I think that one applies here. What are SMART goals? Uh, as relevant to an outcomes project, they're specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're relevant, and they're time-bound. So we want to increase colorectal cancer screening by 7% uh, by Q3 of 2022. That might be a SMART goal. So um, I think many of our projects actually strive to do that. And, and the challenge that we all have is that so-called mission creep where we stack on other things on top of that, that project and then the projects get sort of burdened down by that. Number three, assign a knowledge manager of the analytics up, up front. That's someone who can, can, can manage and own the data. We have a great quality shop here who is very good at managing the data. Unfortunately, there's probably a, a thousand different quality projects which could be launched at this organization. So. This is, I think, a challenge, trying to find a, a, a knowledge manager up front who knows at the beginning, at, in, at, at conception of the project, who manages the data, who can help guide the champions. Four, get end users involved in the process. That's sort of a no-duh. Five, design to make doing the right thing easy. Simplify the process. I think that sometimes we, the Royal, we don't do that here. We, we have a lot of complexity here in this organization around decision-making and, and it, it's easy to get confused. So again, for those of us who are trying to launch uh, quality improvement projects, think about trying to keep it simple. Six, don't underestimate the power of one-on-one -on -one training. And seven, get the champion involved. The champion becomes the CEO of the project. Uh, and that, that CEO we know is charged with the leadership, the vision crafting, the task management, and the relationships necessary to, to execute it. So now I will step back and see if anyone has any comments. Uh, I also open this up to our chief medical officer and a, uh, uh, associate chief medical officer if they wanna make any comments on, on guidance for highly effective outcomes improvement projects. Um, I wanna make a comment actually. Yes ma'am, Trustee Jensen. Uh, yeah, I am, um, well, um, I'm familiar with Deming and I have an MBA and I, I had always found that um, it, some well, this the first point here number one is a little bit of a challenge for me because this, 
especially in healthcare organizations, we do measure we do measure quality improvement. We measure accountability and um, improvement, and, and our regulators tend to measure accountability and improvement together. Are, are we are we meeting this um, standard? Are we are we completing this requirement? And it it makes us accountable, and it also leads to improvement if we if we do it regularly we um we improve on our our reviews and we improve in our effectiveness as an organization so that's my just my qualm with the 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 article point one of it yes ma'am i i i agree accountability is 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 central to kind of any organization as well uh, uh, madam clerk trustee Banerjee is arrived and in the room um i i i uh, i i i I agree with your point of view on that one. I sort of take the issue because accountability goes part and parcel with it. But I think in, in this particular setting, they're, they're not talking about an organization. They're talking about specific improvement projects rather than organizational culture for accountability was sort of my dance around that. But I, 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 I agree with you. Other trustees' comments or um, uh, our, our administrative med, med, medical leaders? Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Bouquet. I really appreciated the article. Uh, I have, I did not read it before I, I saw it in this, uh, but I have read the context of this. So it really uh, puts like very important principles related to uh, how how we are going to think about improving quality. So uh, I have no specific comment except express uh, thank you to to bring it up to life. Thank you, Dr. J. Dr. Tornabene, any comments? Yeah, I think one of my favorite parts of this was, I, I think somewhere in there, if I recall, there was a visual metaphor around um, all boats rising together. Yeah. And, yeah. and that one really stuck with me, especially if you're talking about quality improvement, we want to improve the processes. And then um, I think we'll we'll hear a great example of that later yeah. in, in tonight when we hear from doctors Herring and Tian around the bridge program. Yes, ma'am. I agree. Uh, Dr. Bouquet, I, I just want to uh, highlight uh, the, the culture of psychological safety that is also uh, put into uh, into this article about people speaking up when things are not working. And um, it is a very important principle. It is part of, uh, you know, the journey for higher liability organization. Part of the journey is to be a fearless organization, people not to feel uh, afraid to speak up about what is uh, what is not working. Yes, sir. I agree. Thank you for the dialogue, albeit short. I'm sure we could talk longer, um, but we're going to keep moving. With that, we'll close item A and we'll go to item B. This is the consent agenda. Um, trustees, the consent agenda is before you. There's only two items on it, the minutes and two uh, policies and procedures, I believe. Uh, before entertaining a motion to improve the entirety of the consent agenda, uh, are there any items that need to be pulled for discussion? I see no, I see shaking heads no. May I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda in its entirety? So moved. And a second? Second. We have a, a motion from Trustee Jensen and a second from Trustee Friedman. Uh, Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. 
Can we go to mute whoever's not the I still haven't heard Chesty Friedman. I'm I, I, That's I heard the host keeps muting me. <laughs> so yeah, you're an I. Excellent. I, yeah. Thank you, Chesty. Jensen is you're an I. And Chesty Swindori. Right. All right. Motion passes. Thank you. Uh, the wonders of Zoom. All right. Let's go to, uh, we close item B. Let's go to item C. This is the medical staff reports. This is where we engage that practice as discussed and what we do by engaging our <coughs> med staff leaders. In the room this evening, we have uh, Dr. Kathy Pyun, the chief of staff at Alameda Hospital, Dr. Irina Williams, who's the chief of staff for the Corps, and Dr. Adris Efzali, who is the um, uh, on the San Leandro Hospital leadership team. So mixing it up, let's go with Dr. Efzali first this evening. Good evening, Dr. Efzali. Hello. Good evening, all. Thank you for having me. Um, the San Leandro Leadership Committee uh, will meet uh, this uh, coming month on the on the sixth. Um, so uh, I don't have uh, anything new as of as of then, uh, except a couple of updates on what I had shared. Uh, one of the big news I shared at the board meeting earlier this month was the uh, neurosurgery uh, teleconsult service pilot. Uh, that was launched uh, on the 14th. Uh, we have decided to extend the pilot until July 12th. Uh, that'll give us almost a full month uh, to uh, gain some uh, adequate data. Uh, we've had uh, uh, not as many cases as we did the week before the pilot launched, uh, unfortunately. So we're hoping for a higher uh, uh, end. Um, I'm very grateful for this launch. I think it'll be uh, a great uh, sort of step towards expanding uh, capacity at the community sites uh, for services that we otherwise would not be able to support. Uh, on the same uh, token, uh, today uh, I crunched the numbers. Uh, our volumes uh, are uh, coming back in force. Um, for May, we totaled uh, 2233. Uh, that's 2,233 patients for uh, May 2021. Uh, by comparison, in May of 2020, we saw 1,680. So that's a 24.75% bump in volume, which is uh, which is pretty impressive. Um, and I was like giving a, a comparison uh, uh, for these volumes. Uh, Alameda and Highland have had about a 15 to 16% bump in volume, which is also pretty good, uh, but San Leandro is almost, almost double that. I think Dr. Zali froze. Um, there you go. Mm -hmm. And there's been a, there's been a representative, uh, sorry about that. Uh, the inpatient volume have been uh, seeing a bump as well. Uh, last week, we issued care beds for uh, acute care uh, to offload some of the volume from the ED for the first time this year. We were boarding uh, about seven patients uh, on Friday night uh, when I was on shift. 
uh, unfortunately, my black cloud, but uh, it's uh, it's great news for the department and hoping that it'll uh, it'll sustain. And thus far in June, it seems like it is. Um, the uh, other item uh, that we had mentioned was the security doors. There's no uh, updates on that yet. Uh, and uh, the last item I'll mention is that after the end of the neurosurgery telemedicine pilot at San Diego Hospital, which will be an offshoot of the AHS uh, ethics committee and intended to uh, review cases locally uh, and, and uh, address uh, some of the more common issues in, and then uh, uh, refer the more complex cases to the AHS uh, ethics committee uh, for review and uh, uh, and discussion. Um, and that is all I have. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Sali. If uh, there's any questions, I'm happy to answer them now. Wonderful. Trustees, I'll open it up for Dr. Zali of the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. Dr. Zali, my question relates to your kind of your volume analysis, a 25% increase. What, do you have data from 2019? Do you, do you think you're going to surpass your baseline? Um, uh, and then, and then uh, my question after that is, do you feel resourced to handle the bump in volume? Um, so I was, I, I, I'll uh, take on the second first question first. It's actually a little easier to answer. Um, I was uh, actually just speaking to Carrie Rice, our uh, ED and ICU uh, manager, uh, about our plans for, for uh, well, that stinks. Sort of addressing these volume spikes. Um, some of these volume spikes have been coming compared to uh, three or four weeks ago. Yeah, three or four weeks ago, we'd be seeing 50 to 60, uh, and now we're bumping, uh, you know, uh, up to 90. That Those are challenging yeah. days. Uh, and having worked one of those days uh, this past Friday, I can tell you that it's... Uh, uh, I think we lost Dr. Afzali. Uh, I just one more uh, thought. About that, uh, my my internet's uh, cutting in. Yes, sir. Would it help if you turned off your video? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I think there's a contingency. Let me try to turn off my video. Okay. Dr. Zali. Yeah. Well, no audio from Dr. Zali, but it looks pretty cool in those shades. Um, so uh, we'll hold off and we'll come back around if he comes up. Let's go to Dr. Pyun at Alameda Hospital. Good evening, Dr. Pyun. Hi. Uh, thank you again for having me here. Uh, the uh, medical executive committee did approve credentials and privileges. Um, as you see in your packet. Um, another thing we wanted to mention was um, that we did have a MOX JCO survey at our uh, facility, and it was actually quite eye-opening, and uh, it was very seemingly very strict, but very good and uh, detail-oriented um, 
mock surveyors, and they came in and gave us a wealth of information. I think that it was a very, very uh, good exercise and uh, point out many things that we can improve and uh, to help us get ready for the real thing. So that was uh, a very good experience. And, um, you know, I feel like I feel very much more confident that we'll do well in, in, in the survey going forward. Um, to go on to ranking my key concerns, uh, as usual, transfers are an issue. Uh, we did notice a hole in the transfer system. Uh, there was a patient that um, had some severe GI bleeding, and we um, it was determined that the consultant, the GI consultant, and this hospitalist both agreed that this patient needed to go to Highland. However, uh, for uh, you know urgent uh, surgery, a sur surgical intervention, or uh, endoscopy. And uh, unfortunately, the people at Highland said no; the patient cannot come here, and that was the end of that was the end of it. Basically, basically the ball dropped, and there was no further um, escalation at that point until uh, the doctor, the hospitalist, at night, who, six hours later, uh, contacted um, uh, you know doctor, uh, one of the uh, physician leaders and medical staff who contacted doctor. Bene. So um, I'm not sure what broke down. There just seems to be a, an issue where um, when we do have really urgent or emergent cases that need transfer, and there's an agreement between several physicians, sending physician and accepting physician that there needs to be a transfer. Um, I, we're hearing the word no from uh, Highland, which is, I think, not good considering, um, you know, that really there needs to be escalated much quicker, much faster. The word has to be not no, but how can we help you accommodate this? Because the patient could otherwise uh, expire or die when when they need a, a procedure that could be life-saving. So um, I, I think that this is something that we need. This is a great opportunity for us as, a, as an organization to look closely at um, are the holes in our transfer system and to, and to fix them. So I'm looking forward to uh, Leadership. We brought this up in our med exec committee meeting, and uh, and Dr. Jamaluddin was there, and Dr. Tony Benny, and uh, uh, I've, I've been assured that this is something that will be looked at, and perhaps we'd have a, a good way to address this kind of thing in the in the future, uh, like some sort of um, plan and a, and a mitigation plan to fix this. So it's not hospitalists who are or physicians on the ground who are trying to take care of the patient, trying to um, get this get get attention for their patient on an administrative level um you know, they sh they're too busy taking care of the patient to you know start calling um leadership uh you know and going up 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 the chain so it's it's this is not, it's not right now it's not working for us and i'd like to see uh some changes in that um that that is something that came up that i thought was very important um last time i did I discussed subspecialty support and uh, access. Um, one of the things we did talk about was subspecialty uh, e-consult, which means e-consult basically is a fancy name to say that there's there used to be a way for the doctor, the hospitalist or the ER doctor to, um, they determined the patient needs a subspecialist on discharge and they could order um, a subspecialty consult meaning that they could send them to a subspecialty clinic. And that has been taken away from the hospitalists and the ED doctors at, um, at for sure, San Leandro and Alameda, also the ED doctors at um, Highland. And, um, you know, I, I understand there's 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 a, a need to 
perhaps put this in the hands of the PCP, the primary care doctor, uh, to be the hub and spoke system, to be the center of being the person to generate these consults. However, there's problems in that. I mean, if you want to compare, so let's say Kaiser, Kaiser has a PCP model for sure. They, uh, the PCP would generate these consults um, to the subspecialty person, and there would be a two-way system where the subspecialist and, and, and the PCP could um, speak to one another. However, um, I have been told by uh, a hospitalist, a former hospitalist who was there just a few years ago, um, who works with us now, who, they, the hospitalists are actually do have our power to give to get in consults or get subspecialty consults, um, even on patients that hadn't been seen by the specialist in the hospital. And um, and the reason for this, I think that his his reason he was chief of staff actually for a while at Kaiser Antioch, was that the sickest patients show up at RED, the very sickest patients show up there at the hospital, and they wanted to make sure that they are really circling this patient and, and, and really embracing this patient and trying to help them get the services they need on discharge. So that was their thinking, and they empowered the hospitalists and the ED doctors to be able to make those decisions. Um, I understand that if you want to do a PCP model, that's fine, but unfortunately at Kaiser, the, every, every patient does have a PCP. At, at the county, not every patient has a PCP. In fact, many of them don't have a PCP yet. And we can't identify a PCP even on discharge. But let's say, for example, I want to send someone to a PCP within the Highland system or the county system. I don't know who that doctor is going to be because that won't be determined for several weeks after discharge. So I can't send my discharge summary to that to a doctor because I don't know who that doctor is going to be. I feel like there needs to be a number of changes. Um, either a uh, empower the this hospitalists and the ED doctors to be able to generate these consults. You could have a vetting system where you could have somebody review them and maybe communicate with that doctor in case they decide later on maybe not to do the, not to do the consult. Um, B, have a very powerful system to connect every doctor that doesn't have a doctor, primary care doctor, get them a doctor before discharge. And so I know who that doctor will be and I can send my discharge summary to that doctor. And um, and uh, you know that there, ha there has to be something done, and so that so that PCP can that primary care physician can, can generate those consults for for me, and I would be okay with that as well. So there's there's a lot of work to be done. I think this is another area where we need to uh, make sure our our sickest, our our very very vulnerable patients uh, get the needed care they they need the care they absolutely need on discharge. Um, so that is my report. And uh, you know, if you have any questions about those two very important issues to me, I, I, I feel to the medical staff too that I've discussed uh, this in, at length with many of the hospitalists uh, on a regular basis. Uh, please, please let me know. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pyun, for your report. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Pyun? Trustee Banerjee, you're on mute. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Dr. Pyun. And this is uh, really concerning. So I wanted to ask Dr. Jamaluddin or Dr. Tonabene, while some of the long-term, uh, you know, the short-term uh, logistics and the and the processes are being worked out, like how do we stop an internal transfer from being a no? Like how how is it like that can never happen almost? Like or some kind of solution has to happen while we refine some of the other processes. Uh, uh, Trustee Banerjee, it's really unfortunate uh, that this has happened 
we are really uh, pushing uh, all like administrators on duty and uh, uh, and uh, you know nursing and operational leadership uh, it wasn't a physician refusing the, the the transfer the physician accepted the patient said the patient is uh, uh, we can take the patient the problem is when we don't have beds and when the ed is very full um, they uh, they uh, they refuse that patient in that context but nevertheless the patient does not need the ed the patient does not need a bed the patient needs to go to the endoscopy suite get scoped uh, but uh, still the endoscopy suite will need a pack you beds and we have to problem solve this uh, unfortunately has happened before and um, and i call it a rescue one i call it a rescue we have to rescue the patient the patient has to be treated like they are in the ed of highland same thing same level of care if they are at san leandro or at alameda hospital we don't send this patient out we treat them we take care of them that's number one number two is uh uh, uh yes i agree uh, you know the with dr pion the physicians do not have time uh, to to escalate uh, like like this all, all, all the time uh, so we have we have to find uh, a way to 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 get the patient and to look at the patient as uh, as within a system so we have taken this on and uh, you know we will be working uh, with uh, mr frasky with the transfer center and we always can find solution we always can find uh, it has happened one time also for neurosurgical services, which we deliver, and the neurosurgeon had accepted the patient, but then, then you know, it was the transfer was blocked as such. So uh, we we are we are going to look at it and and continue to look at it. And uh, and all, uh, at the end of the day, I think Dr. Bouquet went to Alameda Hospital and scoped the patient. Uh, I think this is how this was resolved. But but uh, but we have we have to work with those principles moving forward. Yeah, indeed, this was uh, this specific circumstance was certainly a failure of the escalation process of getting to that early yes. And in the end, it was a workaround of, um, you know, Dr. Bouquet, who was not on call, who went in at two in the morning to Alameda to scope the patient. And the patient was, of course, well cared for there. But but we should have had a yes and we should have had a, a yes much, you know, six hours earlier. Trustee, thank you for the question, Trustee Vanity. Trustee Dong, you have your hand up. Hello, um, Dr. Jamaluddin. You know, I think we've heard this issue of transfers from one place to the other fairly consistent from um, each hospital, from Alameda and as well as um, San Leandro. Um, isn't there a way to address this more systemically? Because because the issue keeps coming up. Because we're supposed to be a system of care. Right. And we're all sister and brother hospitals and clinics. So isn't there a way to create that system of care so it's not incidental, it's systemic? Yes, there is a system, and I know that there is a transfer council and there is a transfer. I think Dr. Tornabini can give more uh, details about uh, how we are looking at it, you know, system systemically. Uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it always is subject to the failure of the weakest link at the 11th hour, you know, on a weekend and at night. Uh, and uh, this is not, uh, this is not acceptable. We are trying as much as possible to make the system as 
as much as possible failure, failure proof. I call it rescue. It's a patient rescue. Uh, I don't know, Dr. If you want to uh, shed some light on the how we are addressing this systematically with the transfer center. Sure. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's work um, coming through the count transfer council um, trustees. You'll be hearing about it in this forum next month, actually, um, as the quality improvement project um, here for QPSC will be featuring um, our transfer center leader, Mr. Ryan Dejeev, and then Dr. Bernice Perez with respect to high acuity transfers, one of the items that we're looking at um, developing a, a pilot and we've been engaged the support of the STAR team with that in um, uh, developing a system for ideally a swap system for high acuity patients so that if we really don't have any beds at, at Highland, is there a patient that we could consider moving to one of our, to San Leandro or Alameda in order to move that patient who needs the Highland-based services in? That's an example of something that we're looking at and working at, at developing a pilot for that soon. Um, just a comment on, uh, for Dr. Jamaluddin, you talked about the weakest link. Sometimes the weakest link you have to plan for and you create redundancies and systems so that your hospital, your docs can um, have alternatives instead of just getting that plane now. But that absolutely. Thank you, Trustee Dong. Uh, your hand icon's up. Trustee Jensen's hand icon is up. Trustee Jensen, the floor is yours. Um, to the point of Dr. Pian and also Trustee um, Dong, I think what 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 we and this is an even bigger point or a bigger issue for our system. We do have patients that come in and um, especially patients who have an emergency or urgent issue that come in that may not have a medical home, often don't have a medical home. And they come in and they are seen and they are triaged and they are possibly um, they have surgery or they have another procedure. But without having a, a PCP, they are they're they're followed by every different service that sees them and there's no real uh, person that or doctor physician that's tracking that patient and this continues on until the patient is discharged and then the patient is discharged and to doc, and dr pian pointed out it may be some time some amount of time before they are placed with a primary care physician and i think that's kind of something that it, it, i appreciated that point and if if there were a PCP with the patient or the patient were assigned to a PCP, I, I completely understand the transfer issues, but wouldn't that, and, and I'm asking for comments from Dr. Pune, Dr. Jamaldeen, Dr. Tornabene, Taft, Dr. Baquette, wouldn't that resolve some of the issues with regard to immediate response to a request for service with regard to um, a transfer appropriateness or inappropriateness, things like that? So uh, we have uh, the transition uh, care team uh, and uh, we, we try as much as possible to have the transition of care to a primary care provider. It's part of our metrics that we follow. Uh, but also, uh, you know, as far as the specialties, uh, the, the problem is uh, if we don't use the e-consult and the structured e-consult way for this, uh, one is... Uh, uh, the patient usually do not show up to their clinic, uh, and and we it has increased our no show. But we are we are looking at this structurally now with the ambulatory care team to see how we can support 
the transition of care for the patients at Alameda Hospital, and also to assign primary care provider for, for patients who do not have primary care providers. Many times these patients, they are uh, not followed by primary care providers and seen sometimes by a specialist in the community. So, uh, so we, are, we are looking at it very carefully and see what we can do to improve this transition of care. Thank you. Uh, this will be something, Taft, I'd like to hear more about in the future in this yes, committee at some point. Because it ties in so closely with the transfer issues, I think. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Madam Clerk, can we put this on our tracking list? Yes. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Trustee Jensen, for that comments. Trustee Banerjee, I see a hand. Uh, sorry, I just want to circle back and don't and say sorry. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so basically, do we think and I hope the that as of now, we, I want to reiterate what Dr. Jamaluddin said that we take any transfer patient from San Leandro or Alameda as though they are an internal patient, patient as though they are a Highland patient if they are coming in here. So can we say that as of tonight or that any if it were to happen that there are there will be standing orders and usually if this happens in that 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 shift that there will not be a no today the way the way that tonight that the that while the other things are being worked out of how to finesse the process that nobody no patient will be turned away because somebody did not have the orders or did not know what was needed to be done, that any tra internal transfer is treated as though it's a Highland patient. And basically, Highland shows the same courtesy to Alameda Hospital that Alameda Hospital shows to patients who are um, transferred to that facility. Um. I, I would say yes. I mean, this is really my request and uh, at all levels, like if there is a care that we can deliver at Highland that we cannot deliver at San Leandro or Alameda Hospital and the patient needs it, we should do everything we can to get the patients to Highland and to deliver that care. And if this procedure is finished, the patient can go back to Alameda Hospital if it is safe for them to go back. I think this is, this is you know, what we should be doing. I, I don't know if uh, anybody else, I don't know if Janet yeah, or, I, or Mark Fratsky wants to comment about this. People who are on the ground should know this, like that's all, like you know this, uh, you know the leaders know it, but like the people actually doing this work should also know it at in all the shifts, just wanting to make sure that that memo or that a huddle or whatever that is has gone to to every shift. Mr. Fratsky, do you want to comment? Um, sure. Um, these are all of our patients, and the transitions of our patients should be with ease. Um, you know, it can be. I think is simple and I may be oversimplifying this, of putting in an, an administrator on call structure, which we currently do not have. Um, in this situation, um, it went to Felicia, who was finally at that level to take charge and say yes and make it happen. But until that, 
I don't, I wasn't aware of this, but I can't imagine how many times it got bounced around to different people um, before a decision was made. So if there is an administrator on structure, structure on call, typically it's ELT, frankly. And if I get a call and I'm administrator on call, it's yes. And we'll figure out how to transition to patients. And that's, there has to be one person that can make decisions and take charge. Right now, we don't have that structure in place and we need to put it in place. And Trustee Banerjee, I think that would add a dynamic that would help tremendously with this. Thank you. Well, I just hoping that happens uh, quickly so that uh, no other patient has to suffer and no other physician has to be making, um, you know, run runs at 2 a.m. Yeah, I know. Uh, in fact, uh, James and I talked about this just last week, so it's going to be coming forward soon to ELT for discussion. Thank you for the discussion on that point. Uh, Dr. Pion, you inspired conversation, so thank you. Thank um, you. We'll close out Dr. Pion. Dr. Williams, good evening. Good evening. Um, let me start with my report um, for the AHS core medical staff. Um, as you can see, the credentials and privileges recommendations are in your packets. Um, we've had um, a few committee reports at the last MEC. Um, we have some updates from the department chair search committee. So um, Dr. Tanush Siddhartha, um, who was an interim uh, chair of the Department of Psychiatry, uh, is now going to be transitioning to the permanent role as a chair of psychiatry. And we're continuing to search for uh, the chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, as well as orthopedic surgery. And we will be forming um, a new department chair search committee to search for the chair of the Department of Anesthesia. Um, uh, so more to come on that. Um, we also had ethics committee reporting to us. Um, providing some updates. Um, we have also uh, launched a series um, of medical staff related CME for our providers to help them learn and understand the scope, the roles and the legal aspects of medical staff law. So we've had our first session that was successful and we have two more sessions coming up in the series. Um, this is the uh, to my knowledge, the first time that such CME has ever been um, put together uh, for our health system providers. Um, we have also uh, received some updates on the culture of safety survey report um, and um, the departments are working on focusing on the two domains from the safety climate or teamwork domain. Um, so the departments are working on that. Uh, in terms of the key concerns, um, I think a few questions and discussions that came up uh, at, uh, at the last MEC were um, some questions around the um, Alameda health system governance structure. I think medical staff would love to, I guess, have um, updates and situational awareness of um, where this is headed and what updates we have in terms of developing that governance structure. Um, there were also uh, questions about um, 
the ambulatory care and how it's going to be incorporated in the strategic plan for the Alameda Health System that um, will be developed in the near future. And um, given sort of multiple resignations, there were some concerns about workforce retention and recruitment um, and sort of how we approach it as a health system. So these were some of the key concerns from the last MEC. Thank you for your report, Dr. Williams. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Williams? Crickets, nothing? No questions. Okay. Uh, with that, we will close out the report from our medical staff leaders. Thank you to Dr. Afzali, Dr. Williams, and Dr. Pion. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot, I meant, I forgot to mention that one more thing. Um, Go for sorry. it. Um, there is disaster privileges where we decided to kind of uh, get rid of that actually after um, uh, the medexec uh, voted that out because of uh, we had disaster privileges for COVID, and um, after the mock survey, they told us that that was not really a good thing to have for whatever reason. I think it had to do with uh, some kind of history in New York that there were a lot of perhaps shady doctors that were getting on these disaster privileges, privileges, you know. I don't know. And then they just said, oh, like, just invite law scrutiny. In our case, I don't think that's the case. I looked at the, the privileges of people were taking them off of disaster privileges are all perfectly fantastic physicians from Highland, many of which I know. So that's not really, it doesn't really apply to us. But in, the, but in that case, they did ask us to take it off. So we did. Okay. Um, that, uh, thank you for that. I'll, I'll give you a little further space for comment in closed session when we go into credentialing. Uh, and that will go for Dr. Williams as well. So with that, we'll close out item C and we'll go to item D. Uh, th this one is led by Dr. Jamal Dean. Um, remember, uh, in the prior iteration of this board, we actually had separate agenda items for patient safety. We had patient regulatory affairs, and then we discussed our dashboard. We wanted to kind of elevate this to a higher level, a scene at the strategic level. All the players are uh, important here, but we've collapsed these all down into one agenda item. So this agenda item, item D, is patient safety, regulatory affairs, and the quality dashboard uh, led by Dr. J and of course supported by the uh, uh, a very strong quality team, Dr. Darshan Gray, I mean, Ms. Darshan Graywall, who's our system director of patient safety, Nilda Perez, of course, our system director of regulatory affairs, who's also gonna be talking to us subsequently about the Alameda Hospital mock report, I mean, uh, mock survey, and then of course, Annette Johnson. So Dr. J, the floor is yours and we've allocated 15 minutes here. Uh, thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Uh, let me see if I can uh, try to share my screen uh, related to the report. Uh, do you see my screen? Yes, sir, we do. Okay, so uh, we have provided a narrative uh, for the patient safety report, but essentially the the good things about here is that when we look at the total reported events, they are decreasing, but more importantly, the total events that are significant to be in the category E to I, and these are like the severe category, I is when the patient harm has has, might have led up to, to death or resuscitation. It has been decreasing gradually over, over the years. So we want really the uh, upper line to decrease, but not as much as the lower line. We want people to report, we want to report near misses, but we want patients' harm to decrease. So we continue to see this decrease. And we think 
uh, that this is happening for because of multiple reasons. Uh, one is uh, uh, the just culture is playing an important role in, in people reporting. Uh, the RCA processes that have been more engaging and multidisciplinary level at the medical staff and at the nursing and, and operation uh, discipline. So this uh, uh, this uh, uh, continues to, uh, to 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 improve as it relates to patient safety. We have provided uh, uh, more like sort of categories about what are the reported events in terms of uh, categories. And uh, uh, and then also we have reported on the patient relations and the grievances. Uh, ideally, we like to close them within uh, 38 days, but uh, within 30 days. But during the COVID uh, situation, uh, we uh, could not really communicate effectively with the family. So we are at about 38 days now, closing uh, all all uh, all grievances. But uh, we can see that uh, gradually, uh, you know, we have had uh, de decrease in the in the in the grievances. Uh, so this is uh, as it relates to the patient safety report. Uh, this is the data about uh, the, the the events uh, in the eye in the eye uh, uh, category. We had uh, one uh, anesthesia-related events, and these were uh, reviewed by quality and uh, by the medical staff. And this was a perinatal uh, 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 event where the baby had to be transferred to Benioff Children's Hospital. It didn't lead to death. Uh, this one was an arrest, and I think it led to, to death. So this is, uh, uh, you know, the patient safety. I don't know if uh, Darshan is, is, uh, is on to talk about the score, uh, the score survey. She wasn't feeling very well. But the score survey now has been cascaded to the managers, and they have been educated about addressing uh, the findings in the score survey, one sharing it with, uh, with the staff at all levels, uh, as well as it is shared with, uh, with the medical staff uh, uh, as it relates to the, uh, to the score uh, survey. Uh, I think I, I want to stop here, and then maybe we can go into the regulatory report, see if we have questions related to patient safety. Is this okay, Trustee Bouquet? Of course, Dr. Jay. Trustees, any questions to the to the safety report today? And again, uh, you know, we, we start with our fundamental learnings, the, the safety, the categorization, E through I. Harm begins at E, so A, B, C, D, no harm occurred. So tracking of the E through I is really uh, important. I asked the quality team to perhaps consider, because I, I, I'll say I've asked before, making the opening slide trend by harm, um, because as we've discussed in this in this um, in this forum for many years, um, quality begins with safety, and 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 uh, uh, to 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 harp on the old acronym STEEP, uh, uh, these are the domains of quality: safety, timeliness, efficiency, effectiveness, equity and person-centeredness, these are the elements. So safety is, is how we should be coming out of the gates. I, I agree with it. And, um, uh, you know, I heard, uh, I was hearing an old talk from um, uh, Don Berwick, who many can consider the father of quality care in America. And he said, talking about safety and quality is like talking about bananas and fruit. <laughs> you know, these, these are the same thing. So uh, I appreciate the work that our 
team goes in to, to put together the safety report, and I'm glad we lead up, lead up with it. Uh, Dr. J, I'll shut up now and give it back to you. Uh, thank you. These are important comments. I, I, they always uh, sound good, uh, Trustee Bouquet. They are music to my ear. Uh, so uh, with that, I want to move on to the regulatory uh, report. We have also provided an executive summaries about uh, about uh, all the uh, uh, citations and uh, the corrective uh, actions plan and the corrective actions plan that were that were uh, closed. The ligature uh, risk uh, corrective action plan uh, it was accepted. We had some sentinel events that were corrected related to the retained foreign object, and the plan was approved by the joint commission. So we have here a summary uh, uh, about all those previous events that we have received uh, and uh, uh, received response from the joint commission and continue to follow up uh, to follow up on uh, on them. Uh, I have uh, uh, Ms. Nilda Perez on, on the call. I don't know if you want to add anything specific, Nilda, about the regulatory activities. No. Uh, and I wonder if the trustees or Trustee Bouquet, I'm going up and down, I apologize. Uh, uh, Trustee Bouquet, do you have any specific uh, event or question related to the report? No, sir. It's a, it's a nicely written report. Thank you very much. Uh, I think with that, uh, I would like to move to the True North uh, metrics and give uh, a quick overview about the True North metrics. Again, we have provided a narrative uh, about the True North metrics. Let me just uh, move up to the, uh, oops, it seems it takes time for it to load, so I might have passed it. Let me just make sure. Yes, sir, mm -hmm. these are loading. It'll, it'll be there in one yeah, second. I see, okay. If you are looking for the, the dashboard. Yeah, it's which, which page uh, task? I'll tell you, sir, in one second, because mine is running a little bit slow, too. Okay. We can sit here and flail in front of everybody. <laughs> Apologize. Um, um, I asked the quality team, if you would please consider putting the dashboard as the lead sheet on this section because uh, it's sort of kind of where the money is. Uh, the, yeah. uh, Dr. J, that's a page 54 of 97. Thank you very much. It's helpful. You know, I practice on doing this before, so it seems my computer is just overloaded. I'm just waiting for it to, to overload. Uh, are you able to see it on your end, Taft? Do you want to share your screen? Um, I'm not good at that, Dr. J. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, for some to, reason, to, to preview stop sharing, time. maybe if I stop sharing for a second and I try to. Before we go to the dashboard, I have a question about um, one of the other one of the other charts, or actually about the the beginning of this report. And yes, go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. Um, it's about average length of stay, and I, you know, as we've seen for years, many years, Alameda Hospital certainly, and um, more often. Um, San Leandro Hospital as well tends to not meet the the average length of stay uh, uh, our, our standards, what I guess we could call our average length of stay um, expectations. We're, we tend to be in the red on ALOS. And so given our conversations earlier today and what we hear often from our um, medical chiefs, do, it, it just seems like 
perhaps the it, it's great that Highland is in green, but I, as I noticed that Alameda and Tamiandra are in red and continue to be in red, this seems like it could be related to the fact that we're transferring higher acuity patients and that we're those patients are not perhaps getting the care as quickly as they need to, and so they are remaining in in the hospital longer than anticipated. I just want to get a comment about that, a, a response from how that relates to our transfer protocols, I guess, might be the way to put it. Um, I don't think the transfer uh, has... Uh you know, is really related to the uh, to the average length of stay. Uh, we had some increase in the average length of stay, mainly related to the COVID situation and the uh, inability to move into uh, uh, into uh, nursing nursing home, and then with the transition uh, of care. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, Dr. Piyoun uh, will be able to give uh, a little bit more uh, more about from the hospitalist perspective uh, what uh, what has been happening. I'm still having problem to load this, so I'm going to try to see if I can re, um, re-enter the board. Uh, Dr. Piyoun, do you want to uh, comment Dr. about J- this? I'm sorry to interrupt. Dr. J, do you want me to... Do you want me to share my screen here? Well, that would be great if you can share the TNM. Yeah, let me. I'm on page, uh, uh, council uh, page 54 of 97 in the packet. Okay. And and to, 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 to preview, to jump on a little bit of Dr. Jay Thunder, there's a lot of green on this, uh, on this uh, dashboard, which is sort of refreshing. Okay. Uh, Ahmad, if you could stop before you get there to um, on the third page. For a moment. Right here. I go back up. I think that was average length to stay right there. Right. Right. And so that's just my, as we see the red um, at San Leandro and the red at Alameda, I just wanted to get some feedback regarding the the um, way that the transfer relates, whether or not the um, average length to stay and acuity for Alameda and San Leandro hospitals historically has been for patients that come in are admitted at that hospital. And, and now it's for... Um, it's becoming more lengthy. The, the, we're not meeting the, the target because uh, often these patients are higher acuity transfers from a, a different site. And even though they have the same, the same diagnosis, they're actually uh, potentially less likely to be released quickly or transferred out, transferred to a SNP or transferred to a, um, back to another site. Uh, I think, Trustee Jensen, you have a very relevant point. I, I, I think it's not only acuity, uh, it's also um, other social determinants uh, that of patients who come to Highland and they get transferred, uh, like uh, social determinants like homelessness or access to, uh, post, uh, uh, to post-acute care. So uh, this is a relevant point, uh, and th- we have seen this uh, this happening. Um, uh, I-, I was thinking about the uh, the transfer for in the in the context of the previous question of of transfers, but uh, I think this is uh, this is a relevant point, absolutely. And 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 again, you know, we 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 try as much as possible to give the same support in terms of the transition of care. For the patients who are who are at San Leandro Alameda Hospital, 
Oh, absolutely. And I'm not I'm not questioning that. I'm just hmm. wondering if our measure is being being um, exactly. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, my initial uh, response to Trustee Jensen, it's a great question. And boy, there's probably so many variables. That, that's a tough one to really bear out. Um, yeah. I, I, I think about this concept of that we talked about here years ago, and uh, I never wrote the article on it, and a, a colleague from the mail wrote the article on, on this concept of congestive hospital failure, you know, and, and if you think about uh, uh, like a heart, there's inflow, you know, and that's, that inflow is largely through our emergency departments, and sometimes that inflow into a heart is too much. Then there's the intracardiac pumping. Sometimes we, we uh, in, our, in our organization, we have to wait for this or we have to wait for that. So the pump slows things down. And then there's the outflow track out of the heart. And, that, and that's the disposition to nursing facilities and, and the like. And if they're full, we can't dispo to them to that. Um, I'll say that, that these, uh, this O to E or average length of stay observed to expected length of stay, that if, if we've trend these data over the past few years, these have improved, um, yes. and, uh, and and so maybe the opportunity is for us to uh, scale the vision here for what this is. Because if we trended this since 2017, I'm almost certain it would be a downward curve. All that being said, this is all continued opportunities for improvement, and it looks like April was at target for Alameda. Thank you, thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Um, uh, I know I know that the hospitalists were extremely busy at uh, at Alameda Hospital, uh, and again with uh, with multiple uh, complicated patients. Uh, I, I don't think this is a trend for Alameda Hospital. Uh, I know that they are very effective, but uh, uh, Dr. Tonabeni has recently led uh, with uh, with Dr. Joshi a group uh, talking about throughput from the ED to the inpatients. Uh, I don't know if. Uh, Dr. Tonabeni, you want to comment, especially related to Trustee Jensen's question uh, of, of increase in complexity and social determinants of the patients who we are transferring out of Highland to San Leandro and Alameda. Sure, yeah, we had a great discussion yesterday as a kickoff meeting um, with some key leaders at Alameda Hospital yesterday, just talking about the admission process and, and how we can help um, uh, improve the process and the care of our patients, both at the level of the ED and the, and the inpatient side. Um, in that meeting, we didn't get into that good question about um, what is the impact of transfers on the length of stay for Alameda Hospital. Um, I, I agree, it's a great question. Um, I don't have the data yet to be able to answer that, but it would be interesting to see if we could measure attribution. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, uh, Council, Mr. Could you, Council, could you take us to the full dashboard for Dr. J to help him out? That's page 54. Or sorry, this, you have a smaller version. Keep coming down. Yes, sir. To the big dashboard. Yes, sir. Yeah. Keep coming. Almost there. There you go. Thank you, sir. Dr. Okay. J. All right, very good. Uh, Ahmad, can you increase it a little bit, increase the size? I don't know. Okay, great. I'm afraid to touch my screen now. Uh, 
So, uh, with respect to access, we were measuring the ch uh, childhood and adolescent access to primary care. And as you know, this was very much impacted, impacted during the COVID and the sheltering in. However, there has been a combined effort with the ambulatory team and the pediatrics team, and we are seeing that the needle is moving in the right direction. Uh, actually, the data has been really great, and it has been improving. I think we are... Uh, very likely to hit target for fiscal year uh, 21. Uh, with respect uh, to average length of stay, uh, as, as uh, observed to expected, in general, in general, uh, you know, this, uh, like Highland leads, leads the volume because of the volume. It has been, it has been getting better post-COVID. Uh, post, uh, uh, and it is at uh, 0 0.98. We have seen some uh, increase, as Trustee Jensen was saying, at Alameda Hospital, and we are observing it very, very closely. The median to admit to inpatient uh, by the ED, again, uh, you know, this metric is in the green. Uh, the avoidable uh, days uh, per month, it has improved as we are having more opening of access to our patient in this skilled nursing facility and in the in the post uh, in the post uh, acute, and we are we continue to work on the avoidable days and looking at uh, at patients who are in the hospital who don't need to be in the hospital. Uh, with the quip metrics, I'm happy to announce that we are at 65 uh, percent. We are among the top performing uh, 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 safety net in in California state. Uh, the quip. Uh, team with the leadership of Dr. Gupta has been addressing all the metrics and we have also uh, built in the metrics right now in EPIC so we can see them and work on them. Uh, with respect to the 30-day readmissions, uh, we have seen some uh, increase in our, uh, in our readmission but uh, we have the uh, teams with the hospitalist and uh, in, the three, in the three acute care facilities looking and problem solving around all, all readmissions. And it has to do, uh, one, uh, with access to care after transition out of the, of the patient, medication management, in using, uh, uh, you know, making sure that the patient understand their medications. And we have also more of disease-specific interventions that we are looking at it in terms of diabetes education, uh, prior to discharge while the patient are in the acute care uh, facilities. Um, the national number for this is a little bit higher than that. It's probably in the 13 to 14 percent, but we are capturing only the patients who get readmitted in our system. If a patient is readmitted in uh, uh, outside our system, we are not able to capture it right now, but we are looking uh, at the CMS report uh, related to this that captures only Medicare, and usually it is in the 13 to 14% for California. With respect to hospital-acquired infection, we had seen an increase during the COVID, and uh, mainly due to uh, attention to the COVID patients, and COVID patients uh, pulling resources. So we had some devices which were staying a little bit longer in the non-COVID patients. Uh, and we have had some uh, 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 like increase in the, in the index that includes five parameters like increase in C. difficile at one point in time. 
but uh, we are readjusting right now and we are this month in the green. I'm hoping that we'll be able to readjust and meet targets uh, by the end of the fiscal year. Uh, hospital acquired harms, uh, this is uh, an, an index uh, that includes about 10 parameters. Uh, and we have had two incidences uh, that have bumped this index. Uh, the, the, it's per thousand admissions. These two incidences were related, they were mentioned earlier, they were related one to an arrest that happened uh, at San Leandro after a vascular surgery. It was quality reviewed and it's currently also in review. It doesn't seem that it could have been prevented. All care were delivered. Uh, uh, and then a second incidence uh, of, uh, of a patient who had a deep vein thrombosis. And again, review of this case uh, revealed that all prevention measures were done uh, in that case. So it increased, but in general, we have been trending well on the hospital acquired harms uh, gradually. So uh, year to date, we are at 0.98. Uh, the safety alert of percent event, we talked uh, about uh, patient safety in this, about this metric. Well, now with respect to, to HCAPs, and this is a patient experience, and this is a top box, which is how many percent of patients are rating the hospital at nine to 10. Uh, uh, we have had uh, an improvement uh, in, in during, during this month. This is related to implementation of the gift, which is uh, greeting, introduce yourself, say what for you are here, and, and, uh, uh, and, thank, and thank the patient. Plus other, other efforts related to rounding by the nurses and uh, targeted rounding and, uh, and the service recovery. So there is a great deal of work happening around the patient experience in terms of training uh, our staff, uh, training our uh, uh, physician about gift and, and rounding. And it is trending uh, uh, upward. The CG cap is ambulatory care. Again, you know, uh, we, have it, uh, we have it in the green. We have noticed, again, the implementation of GIFT has been effective, but also we have noticed that the use of my chart, that the patient really like it, that they can connect with their, uh, with their physicians and get answers immediately with the use of my chart. So we are also giving attention to this and making sure that we can have more patients enrolled into the my chart so they can connect with their physicians. I think uh, that's all I have with respect to the True North metrics, and I'll be happy to answer questions. So Thank I you, see Dr. Trustee Banerjee is raising her hand. Dr. Trustee Banerjee, the floor is yours. Yeah. Thank you. It's really good to see um, so many um, greens here and for the Q, QIP measures too. So amazing. Thank you. Work to the team. I wanted to go back to the length of stream work that you had and kind of reiterate just for ourselves to say that that is not a trend. That is like, you know, uh, we have to watch to see if that was a trend for San Leandro Hospital or Alameda Hospital, but also to know that in the past in QPSC, we've sometimes wondered about how low the average length of stay in San Leandro Hospital was, and if that was in any way correlated to like a 30-day readmission higher than that because 0.74, and I forget the page number, it is in, it's 48, um, page 48. But uh, so maybe it's right sizing, who knows? I don't know, but I just want to, the folks on the ground, like Dr. Abzali would probably 
have a good idea about that. So that was my one comment. And then the second one I'd like to end up with was the culture of safety. The score that you had, we kind of whizzed through it, but the three biggest things in the red zone were communication, burnout, and teamwork. And so all three kind of came into play in the, whether it's the um, transfer or others. And I know that Dr. Jean Hearn had been like devoted to physician safety. So the safety, quality, and physician well-being are kind of three prongs of the same, um, uh, you know, if we are working towards a culture of excellence and safety and quality. So he had been so devoted to doing that in the pre-COVID times, and I don't know how much well-being in the, this kind of it, it, during this year has been possible. So, Chair, at some point in time, if we could bring that back and just hear how that has been going in in the light of the pandemic and all of the other upendings that the system has faced. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. May I, uh, may I uh, respond with a few, uh, few observations, Trustee Bouquet? Of course. Yeah. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, you are absolutely right about uh, San Leandro, uh, the San Leandro trend in terms of average length of stay and uh, sometimes readmission. We had looked at it. The patient population really that, uh, you know, has changed a little bit, but uh, usually they come from nursing homes with acute specific problems. So they're, uh, and they have uh, a high uh, number of problems, uh, but usually they come with a specific problem. And many times also it is, uh, it is related to vascular access problem, which is reversed. Uh, and then as you know, if patient has uh, kidney failure, their, their, uh, uh, their uh, CMI or their case mix index is usually higher but then they have a specific problem and they get discharged. And that's why the average length of stay is, but also the, the team also there, um, they don't have a residency program. Sometimes the residency program affect also the workflow. So, so they, they, they just address the problem and, and they, they, work, they work with the patients with the problem and they get the patients out. So, uh, I mean, just this is my, my comment about San Leandro, uh, and uh, Al Alameda, you know, it's it's a mixture, but they get also quite a bit of uh, like uh, number of patients who might be transferred from nursing homes with a specific problem, and then they get discharged. Uh, yes, we have been uh, transferring from Highland uh, much more complicated cases to both hospitals. You know, with pneumonia, we have transferred with COVID, and and this one would have impacted. So that's the first observation. Uh, I I I didn't intend to uh, go over the score survey. I think it needs its attention, and it needs uh, uh, really to have a place. Maybe it's up to Trustee Bouquet if he wants to give it in the future more time. But what you have highlighted is extremely important. One is uh, safety culture. In other in other words, uh, what we brought up about people feeling safe to, uh, to, to speak up. As you know, you know, I have uh, personally, you know, worked on the just culture at multiple level. You know, I was, you know, we've been very effective with the medical staff to introduce a policy, but, uh, you, you know, we have worked uh, now and hopefully we'll have a plan to implement a just culture at all levels with, uh, with James uh, and Mark. And I think, you know, implementing the just culture make people more uh, 
uh, like safe to speak up about things and not uh, feel uh, to be uh, to be uh, attributed to or 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 um, um, you know they they'll feel more safe about speaking up. So that's number one. Number two is about the teamwork, and when we talk about teamwork, it's multidisciplinary teamwork. You know, we are looking. We have uh, tried to implement the team steps, which is a structured way to have uh, a team approach in in high in high impact area like uh, the operating room. Uh, Dr. Dr. Tornabeni had led this work about a couple of years ago, and then in the emergency department. So we will have to look at it again and revisit to have more teamwork and interdisciplinary teamwork. As it relates to burnout, you know, of course, it's not independent of the first two items, but uh, but we are discussing with uh, with Dr. Shitra Achilles Warren right now. What more can we do for burnout? You know, what what more can we do to really uh, address this issue of burnout? So we will uh, we will bring it uh, back up at the at the level of the physicians and at the level of the staff. So this is this is only my my comment and thank you. I appreciate uh, your your observations, Trustee Benerji. Thank, thank you, Dr. Um, I don't uh, see any other hands up, but I only have a kind of a limited view here. That I could see people. Anyone else? Nope. All right, with that, we will close out item D, the Patient Safety Regulatory Affairs and Quality TNM dashboard, and we'll go to item E. I've kindly asked uh, Nilda Perez, uh, our System Director of Regulatory Affairs, to walk us through this quickly. Now, I, I, that was a request of, of Nilda. Nilda's team, uh, and when they put this mock survey together, there was extraordinary uh, work that they put into this. I'm giving, I want to acknowledge, and it's on me, I'm giving Nilda a little bit of short shrift on this because this is a ton of work, but I'm going to let Nilda give us the big picture and contextualize uh, what this, why we went through this mock joint commission survey. So apologies in advance, Nilda. Oh, no, no apologies necessary, Dr. forget. And I can very quickly and succinctly kind of summarize uh, what the purpose of, and I'll just show the safer matrix and just talk a little bit about some of those um, some of the findings that we had just in general. Um, so I will be quick, uh, but I appreciate not having to talk too long. <laughs> okay, so um, here, I hope you all can see my report and I will try to make it a little bit larger for everyone. Perfect, okay. So, oh, never mind. lost my report. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, great. And, uh, okay, so um, this is the report that we received um, at the end. Um, we had a survey consultant, which was a lead physician, Dr. McCord. Uh, we had a nurse uh, surveyor consultant, and we had a EC life uh, safety consultant. Um, and they were here to assess our compliance with the Joint Commission standards to conduct uh, system tracers, identify gaps. Um, I put a summary statement up here that they really were here to assess our readiness with, um, for survey and any gaps in compliance with the conditions of participation for CMS and the Joint Commission standards. Um, the beauty of, and I, and I appreciate Dr. Pune's comments um, regarding um, that she thinks this was very helpful. That was the entire intention. Um, and the, uh, having the opportunity for them to rank us and tell us where our vulnerabilities are is really um, transformative in terms that we can focus on that remediation plan and we can focus on demonstrating compliance in an even stronger way than we did during the actual survey. So here is um, the first part of our safer matrix, which shows some findings in the top uh, row, which is indicates high risk 
and either limited pattern or widespread scope. We had a couple of findings um, that would be possibly uh, condition, uh, condition level findings, um, primarily around our CSSR monitoring, uh, suicide risk monitoring of patients, and around our infection control uh, opportunities um, with our sterile processing. So while it ranked um, across two squares, these are the areas that need um, a little bit of extra attention. And we're working with the operation leaders on that right now. Um, here's the remainder of our matrix really actually um, showing uh, just what you kind of would expect to see for an aging building. They were very complimentary about the um, facilities and engineering team and what they were able to maintain and accomplish. They were extremely complimentary about the staff and how engaged they were, and they could tell that people were eager to learn from them, and they really were complimentary um, around uh, the engagement of leadership of uh, Dr. Tornabene and Janet Ennis making themselves available for the entire day and also the physicians that participated in the uh, med staff and um, our med staff um, tracer and our credentialing and privileging and some of our other system tracers. So um, actually a very good opportunity for people to have that first experience engagement and to feel comfortable. And we're working uh, with the team at Alameda to ensure that people feel more comfortable going forward. Um, as comfortable as you can get with surveyors, um, <laughs> unless you're a regulatory person. <laughs> And so uh, the themes fell into these categories, patient safety, environmental care, infection control, policy development, and implementation. Uh, we're taking this on. We've already met with the leaders, and we've already developed our, um, our remediation plans. Um, I won't scroll through all the rest. Um, I'm just going to summarize at the end that we have um, the next steps are to review our 2018 findings, prioritize the top level of the dashboard, uh, the safer matrix, spending time on units and departments, doing tracers. We are there weekly working with the leaders, meeting with them right now to set their remediation plans. And then we'll be doing weekly status check-ins. And uh, Mark Fratsky, our COO, has, has graciously uh, um, requested to be part of that and to help us um, with escalation if needed. So I'm feeling very good about the team at Alameda and their ability to be safe and uh, provide quality care and do well during the next survey. Okay. So caring Thank is quality. Being efficient. <laughs> now, now we'll open up for questions. I see uh, Trustee Jensen's hand up. Uh, Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you, Nilda. That was yeah. uh, a very good report. So happy to see the, the good results. And I would just, I'm not gonna ask a question. I'm just gonna comment that Alameda Hospital historically, and even before this, our partnership with Alameda Health System was a um, site where the environment of care was a challenge because it's not the most perfect environment, the most welcoming or modern or um, uh, up to date environment. And I appreciate that things have been done, that the, the confidence and the, the um, support and congratulations to the engineers and, and to the nursing staff because it is, um, it's not Highland Hospital, it's not the brand new tower where the patient rooms are there. So thank you for pointing that out. And I, I'm really glad to see that, that there was no major findings in that area as there happened in the past. Thank you. Uh, th again, uh, thank you, Nilda, for a great report. You know what I think of you. Um, so uh, I, my question is, to, is this, can you remind uh, the audience when the Joint Commission window is open for an evaluation of Alameda Hospital. We are currently open in our window now and our window ends in November. 
Okay. So anytime between now and then. And and uh, this, uh, to remind everyone, although there was a logo that said Joint Commission, it was Joint Commission Resources. Can you remind us what that is? And yes. have we ever used them before? Um, I, you know, I'm actually, uh, ironically, tomorrow is my two-year anniversary here, so I don't know if we've used them before, um, but Joint Commission Resources is the consulting arm of Joint Commission, and there's yeah. a firewall that exists between them and the Joint Commission surveyors, so the evaluator team and the Joint Commission consultants, while they will be together for certain trainings, learning the conditions of participation from CMS, the interpretive guidelines, the new standards that come up, the Sentinel event alerts. They, while they will work together in that education, they are completely separate. And what they see during a JCR, what JCR sees during a mock survey, they are not allowed to share with the other side, nor do they have privy to when they're coming. They don't get to the schedule. They don't get any hints or anything like that. So they really maintain that firewall fairly firmly. Yeah. To my recollection, we've never used them before uh, during, at least during my time here. Dr. J. Uh, uh, Trustee Bouquet, if I may comment, I, I think, I think we have used them before the 2017 survey. Uh, uh, it was briefly after I, I joined here, but we intended to use them uh, before the 2020 survey at Highland, but we didn't have the time. The real survey came. Uh, much earlier, we had planned to use them. Uh, you know, of course, uh, you know we have. I have used them in in my in my in my past. So I just would like, if you don't mind, to make a few comments about this. Of course, uh, just to reassure. I mean, in general, we want them to to have findings. Yes. We we want them to be as hard on us as 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 possible, and uh, I think it's also uh, the survey is is very educational uh, for the staff. Uh, to to learn, you know how a survey is 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 uh, is run, and I think uh, it was, it's always you can learn about this survey. So it achieved, though I wasn't here, but it achieved its its goal. I had rounded with uh, Miss Perez at Alameda Hospital at the at the right upper corner findings, and the lower right corner we addressed them, and uh, and uh, you know I can I can confidently say that all of these were were addressed. Uh, we have uh, a couple of items that are being being uh, also fixed as we speak, and then we will continue to round uh, with that with that uh, with that sort of roadmap to look at all these these items. Thank you, Dr. J. Uh, Ms. Perez, a tough question. You know, I asked the, the, that question. Uh, uh, is your team and is Alameda Hospital currently resourced to successfully navigate a Joint Commission survey if they show up on Monday? We're a little light. I will be honest. We are a little light. I, I wish we had um, uh, we had a few extra resources, but I think we, amongst the quality team, there's great support. Um, the other teams that will pitch in if needed. So we always find a way. Um, I think Alameda Hospital. Um, I'm I'm trying to think. I think Alameda Hospital uh, is doing okay. I mean, they've had some recent new leadership, and people are rallying. It was very good to see that people were. There. I think we're a little bit. Um, in some of the technical areas, we might have some uh, some opportunities to staff up. So was that a yes or a no? Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was a yes. We'll make it work. We, we'll be okay. If they come Monday, we'll, we, we are well prepared. The team is had, having the Joint Commission resources team come out and kind of put us through our paces has helped tremendously. Um, and so we're ready. If they come Monday, we'll be ready. 
Thank you, Ms. Perez. Always appreciate your reports, okay? Um, with that, we will close. Uh, sorry, I don't see any hands. Nope, don't see any hands. With that, we will close um, item E and apologies. It's always my time management. Now we come to our feature presentation and uh, I'm going to give this uh, to Dr. Tornabene to do the introductions, although uh, both these uh, doctors I, I know very well. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to introduce this presentation tonight. Um, one of the things that we do so amazingly well here at Alameda Health System, and we're, and this team is nationally recognized for, is the treatment of our patients with substance use disorders. And so it gives me a lot of pleasure to introduce first, Dr. Andrew Herring. He's our medical director of the Bridge Clinic and the co-principal investigator of California Bridge and then Dr. David Tian, Division Chief of Primary Care at Highland Hospital and the AHS Site Director of the UCSF Addiction Medicine Fellowship. And their presentation is titled, Bridging the Chasm, Improving Access to Care for Substance Use Disorders. And, and before we kick off with Dr. Herring and Dr. Tian, uh, my appreciation and apologies, 20 minutes have been allocated to this. Let's give you a little bit more wiggle because this is big stuff. Um, I don't think the closed session will be terribly long, but I try to get our trustees out by 7.30. So if we can do this in 20 to 25 and leave us room to ask you guys big questions, questions might include what do you need? Uh, so you want to get you want to get to that. Uh, so Wonderful. Uh, please, please go great. for it. That's great. Hmm. Okay, perfect. Um, why don't I go ahead and share my screen? Um, all right. Can everyone see that? Yeah, Andrew, I think it's on presenter review right now. So, right. Uh, you see the notes. Right. Does that work? All right. Sorry. Very good. So, um, Andrew, if you go back one slide. Um, great. So, uh, good evening, everyone. I know that uh, this has been uh, a jam-packed and very interesting uh, meeting, uh, especially as a bystander. So, we'll keep this uh, short and pithy for you and hopefully high impact. But it's our pleasure to present today. And um, I think that uh, you'll, you'll see a, um, a retrospective look at how far we've come, but also how far we have to go in terms of serving our community uh, and uh, really doing right by patients and the community who have uh, substance use disorders. And so um, I was brought to this work mainly uh, because I saw in our care that we weren't addressing the needs of patients uh, with substance use disorders. We were kind of putting a Band-Aid on some of the consequences of substance use disorders, but not really addressing the root causes. And so uh, this is actually Andrew's awesome frame, so credit to him. Um, we're going to keep the transitions minimal, so it's not as dizzying, so, um, but credit goes to Andrew for this one. So the problem statement in terms of this A3 is that we're really living in the worst-case scenario with a confluence of several factors. The first is that, as you've seen on the news um, and have read about, there's been a massive and unsustained uh, exposure of the U.S. population to opioids. At the same time, um, the reaction to this was the abrupt regulation and restriction of opioid medications um, uh, without the treatment of uh, physical tolerance and dependence or substance use disorders, also known as addiction. 
And so in this vacuum of a contraction of supply uh, without treatment of need, organized crime has actually filled the vacuum with highly, highly lethal fentanyl as well as methamphetamines. And so we're really at, living at the uh, intersection of these three issues, which, um, uh, which have been true for a while, but um, also inform the work that we need to do in the future. Next slide, please. And so uh, this is just a reminder that uh, this is not just a national statistics. This is here right in our backyard as well. Um, apologies for the siren. Uh, I am at Highland <laughs> at the moment. Um, but overdose deaths are rising in California and in the Bay Area. And so Andrew pulled these data in terms of California. A recent um, look showed that overdoses in the um, uh, during COVID-19 especially uh, have increased about 50% to 60% uh, here in California. And we have some local data as well, looking at fentanyl exposures and overdoses. Um, this is from what uh, Drug and Alcohol Dependence, which is one of the flagship uh, journals in the space, showing that San Francisco County had this really large uptick in fentanyl-related overdoses. So we know that this is happening locally. Next slide. In addition, however, um, we know that we're not offering treatment to people who need it. And so uh, the Urban Institute in 2019 actually did a county-by-county analysis in California of how many people couldn't get care, even if they wanted it, if they had opioid use disorder. And so uh, this uh, this is just a screenshot of the PDF of Alameda County. And as you can see, that there, um, uh, there are almost three out of four people with an opioid use disorder couldn't access treatment, even if they really, really wanted to. There just aren't enough treatment opportunities. And uh, this kind of uh, comparison point on the right shows that if every single doctor uh, who could pre- uh, prescribe the medication that we'll talk about a lot today, buprenorphine, did so, still about half the patients could get care. We actually just have a really far way to go here in Alameda County. And uh, let's compare it to San Francisco. Um, if they actually uh, had these scenarios met where uh, their uh, qualified doctors actually prescribe this medication, uh, they would actually have zero treatment gap. And so um, we have about twice the number of patients compared to San Francisco who couldn't get care if they needed it, whereas we have half the population of San Francisco County. Next slide. And um, we would be remiss. You know, I think that um, uh, Taft today mentioned steep, and one of the E's is equity. And so we really want to draw attention to the fact that um, a lot of this has to do with structural racism and the way that we approach substance use in this country. And so uh, Andrew also found this this amazing article in the New York Times from 1989. You'll see a much more upbeat article later in Andrew's part. But um, this is a quote from this article that was titled Urban Emergency Rooms, colon, a cocaine nightmare. Um, and the quote here is, crack has turned emergency medicine at Highland General Hospital here into a nightmare, a scene of chaos and despair that is crushing the spirits of all who encounter it. Notice that this is not about the people. <laughs> this is not about the people who are actually experiencing substance use or in the hospital because they're in distress. This is actually about society's response to substance use. And um, that has played out over the the next uh, decades in a way that's quite alarming. Um, Next slide. We know that substance use and the criminalization of substance use is racialized and results in deep inequities. These are just a couple of statistics for you. Black people are 15 times more likely to overdose from fentanyl than white people. At the same time, Black people are also incarcerated at five times the rate of white people for drug offenses. This incarceration and punishment does not equate to treatment. And we know, for instance, for the treatment modality that we're talking about today, it is highly racialized. 
Um, and uh, black people are actually five times less likely to get buprenorphine if they present to an office with opioid use disorder. And we also know that of 13 million outpatient visits for buprenorphine, 12.7 million of those were for white patients. That does not match the community need in our community. And um, a local clinic that many of you know well, Roots Clinic, um, uh, actually did a study recently that was presented at the last uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine conference that was just earlier this year. When they surveyed their largely um, um, black patient population and a lot of whom uh, were experiencing homelessness, uh, about half or more people had never heard of this medicine. You know, this is a, a an advance that just never was equitably distributed, which we, we see so much in our community. Next slide, please. So uh, here's the before, and I'll, I'll have Andrew kind of go over the, the after. Um, but just four years ago, you know, when, uh, when I started doing this work at Alameda Health System, we offered zero access to evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder here. Um, that, uh, zero patients were prescribed this medication out of Alameda Health System, period. And so this led to preventable deaths in our county, incarceration, interpersonal violence, and decreased social participation. People don't participate in their families and communities when they are um, uh, preoccupied with getting substances in order to avoid withdrawal. Uh, this leads to the neglected personal, uh, physical health, mental health, dental health, prolonged emergency department stays, inpatient admissions, which we've talked about today, use-related infections, including serious ones of their hearts, uh, clinician burnout and conflict. This leads to stigma. You know, like people actually do not look forward to treating patients who have a substance use disorder if we don't treat their substance use disorder because when people are in withdrawal, they are not the friendliest or most pleasant people, and they often leave the hospital. It leads to learned helplessness and actually uh, worse care for people who use drugs. And finally, um, there's actually a clinician risk of, of use disorder, meaning that um, I think that this is leading to the fact that doctors actually have a higher rate of substance use disorders, such as alcohol use, than the general population. And it also uh, just burns people out. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so uh, putting on my QI hat, since this is the quality meeting, um, uh, here's a fishbone, like, deconstructed. So this is a table, but I put a picture of a fishbone in case you really like a fishbone diagram. So um, here are some root causes and some goals for improvement that Andrew will go over. First, uh, we really felt that there was lack of trust and stigma in healthcare um, towards people who use drugs. People are not treated kindly. There's no reason for them to come to the hospital if they're going to be discriminated against, which just means that they also won't get treatment. And so we sought to create trust in the community that, um, um, to create trust that Highland is different. You know, we will treat people regardless of why they're coming in. And, uh, you know, uh, we specifically welcome people who want to make a change in their lives if they're using substances. Uh, the next was that lack of, uh, there was lack of access for people when they wanted treatment. There were long wait lists. People couldn't just show up and get treatment. And often we throw these moments of intervention that can make a big difference for people. And so um, Andrew and our AD team really worked to establish same day low threshold initiation of buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder the same day, 24-7. You can show up, you can get started on treatment, and we'll see you afterwards. Of note, treatment with buprenorphine actually decreases mortality by 50%. This is a very effective evidence-based treatment. Not much health in medicine actually does that. Um, next, there were long wait times, which we talked about, and so we actually increased low-threshold multidisciplinary treatment with a behavioralist as well as uh, in the Bridge Clinic substance use navigators. And then uh, there were um, no treatment options originally for people who weren't ready to stop using. Not everyone wants to stop using drugs completely. That doesn't mean that there's, quote, nothing to do, which is the classic way of thinking. Like, you fix your substance use disorder and then come back to see me. 
Like, um, I like to share that one of my patients in primary care is currently using heroin and cocaine, um, and she also had her mammogram done. And today I talked to her and we talked about her mammogram results. It's not like there's nothing to do for people and people care about their health. And so there's always something to do. And we promote harm reduction in terms of uh, making sure that people um, have access to overdose prevention kits with naloxone, get harm reduction counseling, such as um, not using a loan and so forth. And finally, um, addiction treatment is siloed. You know, it's really separated from the rest of healthcare. And so in, a, in our interdisciplinary team, we have ambulatory behavioral health, uh, emergency medicine, internal medicine, primary care, all at the table, talking about how to uh, work together to help patients with substance use disorders. And with that, I'll pass it on to Andrew. Thank you, David. Um, you know, I, you for all the folks who don't know the bridge here, you're gonna love it. Like the, the bridge is a really amazing program. I've had the chance of, to work with hospitals all over California, all over the country. This is the single most effective, highest morale program I've ever seen. Um, you, and sometimes practice innovation is really complicated and difficult, like building a Tesla or something. Other times, it's really pretty simple, like TikTok. I don't know, right? So the, the basic idea with the bridge was that the emergency department is this incredible place. It's 24-7. The doors are always open. It's non-judgmental. Come as you are. It's baked into the culture. So you didn't need to build a gigantic additional structure. You just had to repurpose what the ER already did. And it's perfectly set up to reach the highest risk people in the community and get them started in a, in a more collaborative way than is traditional in clinic care. So the first thing we had to do was just get into it and just work with clinicians. So they saw that they had tools, that it wasn't this futile, that picture of anger and animus and conflict that was put in that other um, New York Times article. You could see that actually this is a whole new way work with the patient, you've got tools, we ramped up, we gave them the tools they need in terms of treatments that were effective and worked and were fit the environment. And then we paired that care in the ER um, with really good linkage to our outpatient team. So some of the things we did were like around language, you know, just being really upfront with people. It's not a euphemism of, you know, hey, come in and, you know, take your first step to recovery. You know, it's more sort of being respectful of like, well, okay, you might not know what buprenorphine is. You don't necessarily need to trust me as a doctor and just sort of bite off on like a six-month treatment plan as your first nibble. You can just try it, you know, and we're open to that. We'll work with you wherever you're at. Maybe you want to try it for a day, maybe three days, maybe a week, maybe a month. That's not the decision to be made. Right now, if you're struggling with pain pills, if you're struggling with heroin, we're here right now to help you, and we're going to prioritize the value-added step, right? We're not going to make you do intakes. We're not going to do labs. We're going to get buprenorphine into your mouth as quickly as possible. And so that was the key, right, because the word got out, right? So people, you know, what's the best sort of quality metric here is, like, do people come? Do they want the service? You know, if you open up a chicken shop, like, do people want your sandwich, right? So the word got out that this was effective and people wanted it. And so that's how we were able to make a dent on this enormous group of people who are in the community without care. Um, so then in figuring out how to get them from the ER, we anchored everything in this idea of a substance use navigator. So these are two of our substance use navigators, Zaire and Kelvin. Um, you know, you can call that number. And I tell us everybody, it's 545-2765. 
I challenge you, you know, call that number and see what it feels like to be a patient in the bridge. What is it like to get into our services? And contrast that with what it's like to get in other parts of the system. And you'll see that from the moment you contact, it's friendly, it's flexible, it's working to problem solve and make things happen quickly as, as possible for you. And it's all on, on the backs of, of substance use navigators like Kelvin and Zaire, most of whom are come out of the Mentoring and Medicine Science program. So we're really baked in this idea of mentorship as part of building the program. And it's one of the most personally rewarding things I've ever been involved in. It's fantastic. You know, so Zaire now wants to go to medical school. Kelvin's already been accepted into nursing school. Um, it's just a really wonderful thing. So the other piece we talked about is harm reduction, right, is that this, this split between harm reduction and medical model and abstinence is totally American. It didn't happen in Europe. It's insane. It's all culturally um, rooted. And from a practical standpoint, first, do no harm. It's, it's what we should, all should be doing as clinicians. So just simply, you know, if it's getting someone a shelter to sleep in, if it's getting, you know, if they're hungry, giving them food, if they're not interested in using your medications, but they're still using, make sure they do it in the safest way possible because I'm an emergency physician and I never want to take care of a spinal epidural abscess ever again in my life. And I don't care how we get there. So if it means giving someone a clean needle, that's fantastic. And so that's what we do. We have this incredible partnership with HEPAC, our local, um, local harm reduction agency, who actually help us staff and supply um, safe injection kits to our, our, our folks. We're the first ER um, in, in the country pretty much to do this. And now it's taking off. So this is the, so we paired all that ER work with a nationally recognized bridge clinic. Right? And what makes a bridge clinic? A bridge clinic is just basically means you can walk in and you get served right away. There's no intake, there's no delay, and it's the flexibility never goes away, right? So it's a flexible care that follows you whether you're homeless or whether you're incarcerated or, you know, wherever you want to go or whether you stabilize and you go into primary care, the bridge clinic is there, um, and you that's where we're able to bring together the substance use disorder program and bring to bear LCSWs and counseling and all of the other life skills and behavioral therapy that, that really put together a long-term treatment package. Outreach. We, we believe that the, the, the Alameda Health System is the most effective place, the place where people can be successful, the highest risk people can be successful in achieving life-saving care. So we want them to know about it. So we go to the homeless encampments, crazy stuff, the innovative stuff. We work with the Oakland Police Department and give them Narcan that has our business cards on the Narcan box. And so when they go to homeless encampments, people learn about the bridge program. We, have, we train the providers at Santa Rita Jail so that when someone gets discharged at 2 o'clock in the morning um, um, from Santa Rita, they know they have someplace to go right then and there because of the highest risk of overdose of any person in, in society, basically. We work with the... the COVID housing, we work with all the FQHCs, all the FQHCs and the other emergency departments. So basically that sort of de facto plan for people in Alameda County, if you don't know what to do, it's go to Highland. And we want that. Um, we can handle it and we do a good job with it. And that's why we have um, such tremendous volume. So building this has been a guerrilla campaign, you know, starting with, you know, one little grant here and then uh, the role of Foundation grants has been pivotal. Without foundation grants, we could not have done this work. Without foundation grants, the program right now would disappear. So it's this, this idea of aggressive development to create innovative new programs was fundamental to the bridge. Without it, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, and then this incredible collaboration with people like David and, 
uh, Arena Williams and the emergency department and Karen Wise to, to really pull together these disparate services into a seamless, you know, comprehensive, comprehensive suite of care that the patient experiences as one continuous thing, even though it's really put together with all these different parts. Finally, this model is spreading. It's very exciting. Um, this this be really was scaled up by the state. It started here at Highland, um, and now we're looking at 200 hospitals um, that are taking this on, and it's really well integrated with with national work in multiple states. There are people doing, you know, New Mexico Bridge and Colorado Bridge and all these different things. So it's very cool to see this. So in just terms of real metrics, right, you know, it's, it's basic stuff. Is there buprenorphine? You know, is there navigation? Are you giving out naloxone? You know, um, are you targeting the people who actually are at risk of dying, right? Because some people have the opiate use disorder and they're really pretty stable, but there's other folks that are incredibly high risk. Are you going after homeless? Are you going after people that are incarcerated? And we are. So the, um, our, what we can see is our, is our numbers have been steady and they're very high. So, you know, a hundred um, 100 people in a single month receiving buprenorphine in the emergency department in the hospital. And it would be kind of our average at this point in time. This compares to the, the state average. So these are really good data. These are prospectively collected data amongst 52 hospitals here in California through the CA Bridge. And the yellow is Highland, and then the gray is the average. So I can, this is why I feel so confident that we have the best program in the country. And then the additional set of data is I work with 30, 30 hospitals through, an, through the largest emergency department NIH trial ever put together around buprenorphine. So I see what other hospitals are doing from MGH to Johns Hopkins to, you know, wherever. We, we've got it. Um, um, and we, it's really something to be really proud of. So then the, the thing that's really made this hum was getting it together with David's help um, so pivotal there to create this five day a week access, you know, so when you truly create five day a week drop in access, that's when your ER visits go down before then, not so much, but when you really get there and you can, the patient really sees like, Hey, this makes sense to me. This is easier just to go see and meet with my pal, David versus go to the ER. That's when the visits go through the roof. Um, and so this is every single one of these patients. So we're looking at you know, nearly 800, you know, 760 encounters a month. Every single one of those patients would otherwise have gone to no clinic anywhere. So it's not like we're pulling patients from some other clinic. These are de novo patients, mo many, not most of whom, we got onto Medicaid as part of our engagement. So like I said, the model spreading, it's really exciting. It's just going to grow. We have really strong support at the state level. Kelly Pfeiffer, the Deputy Director of the Department of Healthcare Services, was my initial mentor in this work. Um, she's now in a position to really direct federal dollars um, to this work. And the big, the big next wave is all going to be about equity because it's the right thing to do, and Highland should be first in line there. Um, I've already mentioned ED Innovation, um, which is just exciting. Just to mention that, you know, Highland really hasn't had a big NIH, you know, perspective clinical trial like that. And it's really exciting that we landed this um, and so that we really can offer, you know, best-in-class treatment that's not even available elsewhere. It's a study I really believe strongly um, because it's not just some, you know, I don't know, um, some study that, that's looking at some detail of treatment. You really are able to access a drug that is better than what is available elsewhere um, through this this program, so it's fantastic that we can offer this for our patients. So with that, I'll turn it back over to David.
Well, thanks, Andrew. And uh, to close it up, um, I think that um, we just really wanted to point out also that uh, this program success is the system success as well for many different reasons. And I think that um, because of uh, the work that we've been able to do, we've actually pegged some of our performance metrics um, with some of our um, payers as well as uh, state partners, uh, local partners to uh, the bridge work. And so uh, post-emergency department follow-up and engagement for substance use disorders is a um, is a quality incentive uh, project metric. And that's a typo, I should say $1.5 million there for, for this next fiscal year. It's also a county uh, contract metric that we have um, through our health pack um, um, contract with, with the county that's actually worth about $4 million in the fiscal year. And also, um, this slide should say that harnessing um, the QIP bill that, uh, uh, shout out to Neha, who's on this call, uh, for the QIP metric, we're actually able to uh, use robust um, process metric tools to make sure that these three uh, parts are true, that there's connection for patients who show up for EB to, uh, to a substance use navigator, that we're offering evidence-based treatment, which is actually unfortunately quite rare in the treatment of substance use disorders, and that we're trying to engage people for for the long haul. So do they show up to clinic? Do they uh, remain in care for 30 or more days? And those are things that we're actively measuring now and can benchmark uh, because this is a HEDIS metric that our payers might care for as well, but also allows us to benchmark ourselves against peer institutions. Next slide. And finally, to Andrew's point about equity, um, this work is about equity because of all the reasons that we mentioned. Um, uh, I mentioned the study that showed that for many, many different reasons that people don't know about this treatment. And so we have a lot of work to do in community outreach. But also, um, we, uh, speaking of NIH-related work, um, Dr. Monoshula helped us to be a site of the NIH HEAL study to actually improve service coordination from Santa Rita Jail over to the community. And so we are really focused also on how we can make care more equitable in the space especially for people who are at much higher risk of overdose, um, right? Uh, after people leave incarceration, they're at up to 200 times higher risk of overdose in the first couple of weeks. And so we're trying to get those folks uh, before something um, like that happens so that we can make sure that they continue to be safe. Um, and that's actually all that I have. I believe. Well, guys, um, and I see hands coming up. Um, so we'll dig in. So trustees, I think this is worth uh, going past our regularly anticipated time. So just just know that this is why we're here to have dialogue. I don't an anticipate closed session to be very long. So let's talk as long as we want to talk. Uh, Trustee Friedman, then Trustee Dong. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Andrew and David. As the newest trustee, this is the first I'm learning of the program. And I thought your presentation and more importantly, your work is really inspiring and uh, I'm really happy to learn about it. I wanna thank you. Um, my question is, what is the biggest challenge you see to sustaining and expanding this uh, wonderful work? Great question. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'll just jump there that in it, it's the substance use navigator because the substance use navigator is a cross disciplinary role that didn't exist previously. That, and so, the, you know, the patients experience care crossing ER, inpatient, outpatient, specialty addiction, ambulatory, primary care, right? They cross all those boundaries. The, the, the substance navigator follows them. So that, that position right now is, is, is sort of put together with duct tape and chewing gum through a multitude of overlapping grants, which we've been really fortunate to get. But that is the core thing. Um, that we need, that we're really looking forward to, and have plans in motion on how to make that happen and make that a 
permanent um, benefited position. I don't know. Thank you so much. So oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to agree with Andrew on this point and also say that um, th this is a change in paradigm also of bringing people who are not in care to care. It's um, I think often when we think about care coordination, we focus on uh, readmission prevention, for instance, but often people who are at the highest risk of overdose actually not engaged in healthcare at all. You know, I think that's why the emergency room model has been so successful and why our navigators are so key in getting people linked to care. And so, um, you know, uh, taking a systems perspective, this is not reimbursed work in current state, you know. And so I think that um, it, this is the upfront investment that's necessary to make sure that programs like this can bring people who are very high risk into care so that we can save their lives. Thank you. Trustee, Trustee Dong, you're on. Um. I'm so excited. I, I look tired, but I'm so excited to hear your presentation. <laughs> I'm, and I'm also so thankful because I, for those of you who don't know, I spend a lot of time in homeless encampments with my team. And we have a multidisciplinary team that goes out to encampments in San Leandro, so kind of a hometown uh -huh. Leandro hospital. And I, I go out with the CAT team, the mental health uh, 5150 team, as well as our RN, Mental Health Street Outreach. And I just brought on Optum uh, Recovery Services, which is uh, substance abuse with housing. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you, you're absolutely right. Um, fentanyl is there, yeah. heroin and meth. It's an incredible yeah. problem. People don't want to talk about it for some reason. I talk about it a lot, so I thank you for your work. And uh, I'm definitely going to be calling one of you to connect with us so that one of your navigators can walk with us. Because a lot of my people have multiple uh, issues along with mental health, addiction, um, also taking their own kind of psychotropics on top of it. It creates a storm of activity. And we often do end up in your ER. So yep. um, we do pass out yep. Narcan. And we pass out a lot in Narcan to decrease the street value of it. But um, what a valuable uh, and exciting program! Um, I, I, I don't. I'm kind of lost for words because I'm I'm really excited. So I'll be calling one of you. And just I love it. Yeah, and San Leandro is up and running too. So yeah, definitely call. You know, contact the contact me. Contact the Suns, and we'll we you know be the same at the same token. We really want to partner with you, and that work sounds exciting and perfect. Um, as a something to integrate, so let, let's let's do it. Yeah, I also think that the county, and I know Amy is on the phone. I think yeah. a lot of us in the homeless business, um, help, you know, that are out there in the field with teams of people, we know the issue. But somehow, when I talk to the county, you know, Nathan from the county, there yep. just doesn't seem to be the resources to kind of integrate what we really need out on the street because this fentanyl thing is just growing and it's actually very 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 scary yeah so, yeah yeah it's it's an issue not you know many counties in, in california struggle with the, the behavioral health care services being the location for substance use treatment which has traditionally been psychiatry driven driven behavioral therapy and as a whole world Whereas the public health departments, just as soon as it became substance use disorder, kind of just don't, they don't deal with it. Whereas this clearly is this public health emergency. So where access to buprenorphine fits in that structure, you know, it has really been a problem. Um, and that, that, that's kind of what, what you're seeing when, with your interactions with the county. So uh, my hope 
is that with a couple of statewide things like the that are in in process now that in two three years that bizarre divide um, between medication-based treatment and behavioral treatment will go away and we'll see a more unified county approach yeah, yeah the, the county has been great but they have limited resources yeah. which is why we included optum and because it also had housing for yeah. for um, counseling services and re rehabilitation but we can talk more offline i won't take up any more of the board's okay. time I'll let, I'll let other people speak and i just wanted to jump on and say also that part of this and uh, meeting the needs of people with concurrent other mental health conditions is having ambulatory access to behavioral health which is really tough in this setting you know you may have seen the news articles about how the doj thought that you know alameda county's health care services were unconstitutional and um, i think that you know we do a lot of uh, mental health care in the bridge clinic because there is no other place for some of our patients to go. And I think that if we can expand access to ambulatory behavioral health care for these patients, um, we would be doing them a great service as well, especially the folks um, that Trustee Dong mentioned who, are, um, who have a lot going on. You know, it would be awesome to have a psychiatrist in our clinic with us as well. Yeah, I'm sorry, last word since you said that. Um, uh, a number of cities, San Leandro included, San Leandro Hayward, uh, Alameda are looking at doing a first responder, mental health responder um, with a nurse practitioner and possibly other folks in EMT, paramedic, different models. Uh, and maybe we can figure out something to include you. But oh, more, yeah. 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 You know, we, buprenorphine can be started on the street, right? So we have mm -hmm. paramedics. Uh, we have a, that's coming up. Um, Alameda County will start that next year. So that'd be great. Um, Thank you, Trustee Dong. Dr. Herring, would you mind uh, closing the sh screen share so we can all see each other? Oh, of course. And then uh, Trustee Jensen's hand is up. Oh, thank you. That was a terrific presentation. It's so good to know that we're leading the nation in this area and that um, we are really meeting the needs of, of, of many people who are experiencing substance abuse on the streets in Alameda County. My question goes to um, the the discussion that we just had when the presentation closed and if you could just expand a little bit on how we how the bridge clinic um, coordinates or works with uh, John George when there are, are patients yeah. or um, people who come to John George for care that have substance abuse issues yeah you know you you, you kind of hit our soft spot um, you know it's not easy um, it's it's one of the most is it's one of the things that I am most committed to in the coming year um, because that the volume of John George is so great that the, the high mental acuity is so great. So we kind of, you know, we're a snowball program, right? We can't really force people to the table. It's just, it's really bringing people along as we, you know, sort of make it seem like a good idea and attractive. Um, so we, our first step was to get buprenorphine on the formulary at John George. So when people could be started and sustained at John George. And so the next step, right, would be to have a, a substance use navigator on site at John George. And that without that, um, no matter how great Tanu Siddhartha is, no matter how great um, people on the staff are there, we'll never really be able to get them into the clinic with, with the kind of, you know, fidelity and consistency that we want to see. That's where you really need that, 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 on the ground substance use navigator, which is which is a big funding gap for us. And that's that seems like it would be 
it, it would be fiscally uh, responsible for the organization because then you would have fewer people, you'd have people recovering and fewer people that would come back hopefully to John George or elsewhere in the system. That's, I, I, I support that. You know, I know the rest of the board hopefully would do that, support that too. And we can get that, that coordination and cooperation going at John George really seems like a great idea. Thank yeah, you. I, I agree. Thank you. For, thank you for that comment. Thanks, Trustee Jensen. Um, uh, whenever I hear something great, I have a million operational questions, but I'm not going to try to do them all. Um, <laughs> uh, so this one's to Dr. Terring and Dr. Tian. Can you can you refresh for us what is actually the governance of of the Bridge Clinic? Does this exist under ambulatory? Does this exist Ooh. under primary care? Does oh. this exist under emergency department? Yeah, you you brought up a great question. I was I was just talking with um, leadership about this um, the, the the other day. In in that it's it's really you know this this coalition of the willing um in that the, the the it's the emergency department it's behavioral health it's primary care it's specialty care and it's all brought together you know um because they all believe this is a good idea but there's really no cross departmental governorship um that formally formally governs it, governs it which i really think is a gap um, yeah. And I would look forward to kind of creating that um, because, that's a, that's you know, question. right. Cause people are people and you get yeah. drawn into your own agendas, you know, kind of backfilling here. It's just, it's just human nature. So having this sort of focus on the, the, this is the accountability is to the, the, the whole of the bridge um, right. as it crosses these departments. Um, that's something I would really, we'd all really love to build. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Tian. Sure. I was just going to say, um, you know, a concrete answer to your question is that um, it's kind of a mix, actually, just because um, in terms of the current funding and governance structure, uh, ambulatory behavioral health is now under ambulatory. It was previously under um, like uh, uh, behavioral health uh, in the same um, SBO as John George. And so right now it's administered as an ambulatory clinic. Um, however, um, to Andrew's point, you know, um, I think that it's it's challenging to actually get stakeholders without some type of incentive for them to participate. So, you know, part of what Andrew was able to do with the California Bridge funding was to actually hire, um, hire, pay for a clinical champion in OB-GYN as well as hospital medicine, which is why our rates of starting people on medications in hospital medicine went up a lot because we had a clinical champion who was Mona Jewell, who plastered posters on the treatment protocol and our navigators all over the resident workrooms and gave talks on it. And now our, our residents actually know who the navigators are and sort of medications, you know? So this type of cross-institutional work is something we often think of in the realm of care management. But again, you know, I think care management is heavily focused on readmission prevention and um, high utilization, which can um, focus on a lot of the patients we're talking about, but may actually leave and exclude systematically patients who are not engaged in care. Yeah. So, and what what a great story! It's the, you know the genesis of your clinic is 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 true. Uh, come from the ground team together, but it also becomes the frailty of the service, right? Because yes, that's right. Become an orphan. You got and, it. You got and it. And you need someone to govern you. Yeah. Second, uh, I have two more comments. Uh, 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 ballpark. What's the cost on a substance use? I, I heard the ask, yeah. a substance use navigator. Yeah. Do you know the ballpark of uh, fully fully loaded uh, substance use navigator is? You're in the 65 range. Okay. Right now, and, and you know, the, uh, I, I won't even get into the horror 
Like, but right now it, it's this, it's this crazy. We actually have to contract with Robert Half. Okay. Right. So it means that we just, we have to, we just pay out the nose. So they, they're going to take, they take this huge surcharge because a temporary agency. So it's this really lamentable situation. Um, so we actually pay more than that right now. But if we've just baked them in as, as staff, then we would, it would be a huge cost savings. So, in so I, I did hear that from you too, that this would be an, I, I, I invited you to make an ask that would make an ask. That would be one of your asks. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Tien, uh, I, second, I second that. Yeah. I think that um, there are certain job classifications that are uh, already exist here at AHS and uh, you know, those are more easily funded and protected over time, but the navigators are the member of our team. Um, uh, they're our critical member of our team where, um, you know, their funding as well as their job classification is not settled or not protected over time. And that is something that is pivotal to our continued success. Okay. Um, I don't see any other hands and to close out, oh, sorry, Trustee Banerjee and then I'll close out. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say thank you. That is a phenomenal program. And to circle back with all that you've been seeing, the fact that you have to depend on foundation fund for a long time, like would love to kind of have a deeper offline conversation about like what funding structure you have and how yeah. we might be able to strengthen this. So uh, uh, it, it's more than a navigator. It's a lot. It's it's it structure. So yes, let's do that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Trustee and I'll, I'll end this uh, amazing session by uh, Drs. Herring and Dr. Tian. I need an apology from both of you, and I need you to apologize for future presenters on this agenda item who have <laughs> now a higher bar. <laughs> so um, with that, we will close out item F. Um, thank you for the talk. That was worth going over time for the Board of Trustees. Dr. Tornabeni, thank you for selecting this on. And, Maybe we'll hear about it uh, uh, down the road as well. Uh, with that, we will close out item F. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank um, you. Uh, Bye-bye. Item G is the planning calendar issue tracking. Remember, uh, uh, we're in June. We have July. We uh, This committee is the only of the board committees which is active in August because we need to approve credentialing. So we will be in August. Um, so uh, any other comments on the planning calendar or, or issues that need to be tracked. I think uh, our clerk of the board is helping us keep keep track of that. We've previously discussed a follow-up talk on nursing education on throughput and the transfer center. And I think the transfer center will be coming back, coming to this, uh, to this uh, committee in the short term. So with that, we will close item G. Audience, uh, this uh, board, uh, this committee is gonna now go into closed session. Uh, council will announce the purpose of it. Um, I'm hoping this will be less than 15 minutes, but that is uh, that is it for our open uh, items for the evening. So uh, thank you for your attendance uh, and uh, council. Board, uh, the committee will be going to closed session now to consider those items uh, stated on the agenda. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>